0: Travel with me to a dark and isolated farm located deep in the heart of St. Mary's County, Maryland, where the only African-American farmer and his family are being tormented by some thing stalking around their property. Can they survive? Can they protect the farm that is their very livelihood? And can they do it with their sanity intact? Are you in the mood for dark, isolated, rural horror? Are books full of ghastly green goo and reanimated corpses your jam? then check out Mulch, the eerie inaugural novella from Maniacal Books, available today on Amazon Kindle and mcsbooks.com. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be
1: covering a short story called The Gospel According to Mark, by Jorge Luis Borges. This story was published in 1970. It was translated by Andrew Hurley, and uh, we read it in Collected
0: Fictions, which was published by Penguin Classics. This story, really, as all the stories that we cover here on Elder Sign anymore, but this story was nominated by one of our really great Patreon supporters. And of course, we want to say thank you for being a supporter. Thank you as well for nominating this uh, really fantastic story for us to talk about today. Yeah, this
1: is a story that I found to be rather inscrutable. I mean, I had to chew on it a lot uh, this week in order to make sense of it and how we were even going to talk about it. Um, But I love Borges and I love this story. And you do, once in a while, come across a Borges story that just kind of stops you cold because there seems to be a lot going on and maybe a lot to uh, figure out and to make sense of. Borges really demands that you make sense of his stories. And
0: um, I don't know, we should probably know what this story is before we go down that road. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah. So this story takes place in Argentina in March of 1928. And our protagonist is Baltazar Espinoza, and he is a a medical student. And Borges spends the opening page giving us a list of important facts about Baltasar Espinoza. And uh, I'll just list some of them here. Brandon can fill in the gaps because there's actually like there's a lot here. It's a big (laughs) list. So first is that Espinoza is 33 years old. He is a great speaker, uh, evidently a great speaker both in Spanish and English, but at the same time he is full of and I'm quoting here an almost unlimited goodness. And then also he he genuinely does not like to win arguments. He also doesn't like to win at gambling, uh, though he does at least find card games interesting. And he promised his mother that he would recite the Lord's Prayer every night, and he always does. Now Espinosa is nearly done with the work required, the coursework required to earn his medical degree, but he's been procrastinating on some final work or, you know, not getting it done for some reason, but pretty sure procrastinating is what we're meant to understand here. And the irony of this, though, is that the work that he hasn't done is work for his favorite class. And so it seems that the picture that Borges is trying to paint here is one of internal contradictions. Right. Right. Espinosa really struggles
1: to focus, it seems, or to complete any task or to succeed at anything, really. like He's always on the verge of success. And so there's this sense that you get that he's uh, breezed by on charm and uh, strong ability to communicate clearly. And so what he's rewarded for is really uh, his potential to achieve and his ability to hold and communicate opinions that can get him noticed. And in part, you know he gets noticed because his opinions are are somewhat oppositional. But part of the picture that's painted here, I think, is uh, also about Buenos Aires and Argentina in general, because in 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 1928 in Argentina things are really improving. Buenos Aires is a cosmopolitan city and it just feels like, you know, with some of the improvements that are being made civically, that the sky's the limit in terms of what Argentina can become, but it's not there yet. And so I think there's this real question about potential both for Espinosa and Argentina here at the the start of the story.
0: Yeah, there's even a little bit here in the description of Buenos Aires and also Espinosa's attitude about the changes that are happening in his home. Uh, There's a bit there about skyscrapers. And, you know, we just take skyscrapers for granted, of course. But in 1928, this this would have been exciting. This would have been new, uh, but also controversial, right? Should we even be building things this this tall? You know, is that safe? Is it dangerous? Are we... uh, uh, are, are we making another tower of of Babel here uh, but also just are they ugly or, or not right, right are these right. actually aesthetically pleasing and uh, Borges has has something to say here that I think serves as a, a nice microcosm for exactly what you're pointing to.
1: Yeah, I mean should the will of the people should our expression as a as a nation the identity of our nation be following something like the American way do we have our own uh, sense of who we are as a people like these are the sorts of questions that I don't know if they were historically present in Argentina Borges would know that better than I, obviously, but um he's he's put them in the story as kind of being core questions at the time is like what are we doing as uh, in self determining ourselves as a nation there's also i mean a really serious contradiction that we need to point out here because I think it informs a lot of the story and really even a lot about espinosa's character. You mentioned, Glenn, that Espinosa's mom wants him to recite the Lord prayer every night, and Espinosa does that. But Espinosa's dad also has stuff that he wants his son to do, and that's he wants him to read Herbert Spencer. And Herbert Spencer is the man who put forward the theory of social Darwinism. We'll talk a little bit more about him uh, at the end of the story. But Spencer believed essentially that society was progressing in, in a Hegelian sense, and that the end of society or the telos of society or of social progress would be that mankind would have perfectly evolved to live in a perfect society. Uh, in, in other words, there would be perfect man and perfect culture. This is something that I think is pretty antithetical to Christian theology or Christian dogma, whose existence as a religion or a social organism, maybe to use a Spencerian term here, is rooted in imitating the role of a perfect man who was in a an imperfect society. And, you know, really the the call on people who would call themselves Christians to imitate that perfect man. So Already, I think Borges is up to something here, and this is going to be a a big part of our discussion. There's one more thing I want to point out here, and this was pointed out to me by the end note in the uh, Collected Fictions edition that we have the story in, and it's this. Espinosa means something like thorny in Spanish. This is going to also be an important note when we get to the end of the story.
0: Yes, right. And we will uh, also then bring back the the, the fact that we uh, we have specifically, you know, Espinosa's age, and also what time of year, what season, what month is this story taking place in? Uh, we get all of this upfront, but we'll—I uh, don't know—we'll—we'll we'll try to re- retain, uh, we'll try to keep some mystery around that until we get to the get to the <laughs> end here. So, yeah, that's the that's the main character, but now, like, we can actually talk about what the story is going to be. So Espinosa is going to spend the summer at a ranch. Uh, it's a ranch that belongs to his cousin, Daniel. Now, almost as soon as Espinosa gets there, Daniel leaves for a week on you know, some kind of business errand. You know What it is doesn't, doesn't really matter. It's just important that he's gone. And while Daniel is gone, there is a terrible storm that floods the ranch and cuts it off from its neighbors. It, it isolates it. The house that the ranch hands live in has a leak in it now and so Espinosa lets them stay in the main house. And we should say a little bit about these ranch hands. They are the Gutra family. Uh, there's a father and two adolescent children, a son and a daughter. And we're told that the man's wife had died some years ago, uh, though we're also told that the paternity of the daughter is uncertain. This might be an off-color joke about Argentine ranchers that we just don't get because we are not Argentine from like the middle of the 20th century, (laughs) but it may also be a biblical allusion. I'm actually looking forward to you unpacking that, Brandon, if you've got something there. But at any rate, while exploring the house, Espinoza discovers an old Bible. Uh, It's in English. It's an old Bible translated into English. And inside is the family history of the Guthries. And the narrator tells us that this indicates that the Guthrie family were originally immigrants to Argentina from Scotland in the early 19th century. But the record inside this, this Bible, the, the record of this family history, ends in the 1870s, by which point the family had become illiterate. They'd forgotten how to read, and now also they no longer know english and they've also even lost their religion
1: i don't really know what to make of so much of the christian and biblical imagery and symbolism that we get in this story but my sense of this bit about the uh gutre family is that it somewhat mirrors the the trinity right we have a father and a son and then the daughter uh could be taking the place of like the, you know, numina the numinous, you know, more maybe more feminine energy of the Holy Spirit in some sense. I'm not sure what to make of that. Uh maybe there's something there. We're definitely going to pick up this question in the discussion, though, that that and put it in a more broader context of how Christian symbolism is functioning in the story. But I do want to talk a little bit more about the Guthrie family here. The well, I should say the Gutre family situation in general, reminded me a lot of the Delapours from The Rats in the Walls by H.P. Lovecraft. And I think that's because Borges is pointing to some feeling of decline in the family to some degree. This family emigrated from Scotland to the New World. They intermarried with Indians, and they just got worse from there, from the perspective of an educated city man. Although the Gutres seem to know a lot about the land, they don't know how to communicate what they know about the land to Espinosa. And because we are somewhat in Espinosa's point of view in this story, and there's this barrier in communication, we can't help but to feel as though Espinosa feels that the Gutres are just these well-intentioned, but Ignorant country bumpkins. But I think Borges lets us know as readers that it's unclear what Espinosa is really adding to the mix on the ranch. You know, like what his presence is really bringing to the table in his cousin's absence, other than being a figurehead. Like he's not really helping with anything. He doesn't really know how this thing functions. And yet he's still looking down on the people who are making this ranch really work in the absence of the person who's in charge of it. So I don't know. We're about halfway here through the end of the story. And I'm not seeing much about the gospel of Mark. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you can make a, a biblical analogy out of what I've just said about the missing figurehead and somebody taking their place and you know whether or not they're doing a good job. I, I, maybe you could do something with that. But... um
0: yeah, what there's not too much gospel here in in the story so far. Yeah, not so far, but we will we will get to that. I I like your comment here, Brandon, about comparing the Gutra family to the De La Pores from the Rats and the Walls, because I think there is also, you know, it's not just that they have become illiterate, right? They've lost their ability to read, also lost their native language. Though I think that's something we expect, you know, as part of the the immigrant experience. Uh, but then also have forgotten their their religion and maybe even forgotten their sense of even their family origins, but I think the fact that this Bible is here in the big house, right, in the main house on the ranch, suggests that this used to be their ranch. Right. But now they're actually just the ranch hand. Someone else has bought it. So there's been some kind of, you know, fiscal or or economic decline as well, right? That this family came from Scotland on the the promise of either, you know, free or or discounted farmland out here in the Pampas. And they got some of that, but then now they have they have lost it and have become servants on land they used to own, right? That they used to be a kind of aristocracy, but no longer is that true. And of course, that that is the story of the daily. Lepore's in The Rats in the Walls as well.
1: I think that Borges and Lovecraft are kind of tugging on the same threads in terms of intellectual history, uh, which which we will talk about about what Spencer was up to with social Darwinism. I don't think Borges is really resentful of this. I think this story is meant to be a little bit of of a comedy here, even though it has a tragic ending for Espinoza. Yeah, but I think you're absolutely right about this sense that the Guetrades were supposed were once so much more than they are now and that there's still some of that greatness in their blood. There's something about blood purity that is sort of hinted at, I think, in the background of the text, though it's never explicitly spelled out, um but I think Borges is playing with that in the same way that Lovecraft was in The Rats and the Walls.
0: Yeah, and you're, you're right that there is something comedic about the story. I don't know if it's a, a comedic tragedy or a tragic comedy. I think we'll talk about that <laughs> at the end, but definitely this has some gothic feeling to it, right? That, But the gothic feeling is not here in the protagonist. It's here in this other family. It's wrapped up in the, the setting. It's almost kind of incidental, which I think then lends itself to this, you know, the air of comedy here, right? Where Espinosa doesn't know what kind of story he's walked into but we the readers can can start to get hints of this, you know, paragraph to, to paragraph. Well, all right. So as I said, the family is illiterate, but with the flooding, they're all stuck together in the big house on the ranch. And so Espinoza reads to them from the books that he finds in the house. There's only one novel in the house, and it is disinteresting to the father. And so Espinosa decides to read to them from the Bible instead. And specifically, here's where we're going to get that, right, And Specifically, the Gospel of Mark appears in the story at this point. Now, this Bible is in English. And so what Espinoza is actually doing is site translating it into Spanish for the Gucher family's entertainment. And this works. They're fascinated by it, uh, in part because Espinosa is such a great orator. But also, it occurs to him that throughout history, there have been two basic stories that have captured the imagination. One is the story of a lost ship sailing the Mediterranean seas in quest of a beloved isle. And the other one is the story of a god who allows himself to be crucified on Golgotha. But anyway, the the Gutras love it, and they love it so much that they wolf down their dinner so that they can get to the post-dinner reading more quickly— And then after a few days, when Espinoza is done, they ask him to read the same gospel again, right? Espinoza is ready to read a different part of the Bible or maybe something entirely different altogether, but that's not what they want. They want him to read the same story again, the gospel according to Mark. Now, during these days as well, the daughter's pet lamb gets hurt. And because Espinoza is a medical student, he's able to heal this lamb Espinoza also begins to feel comfortable as the stand-in for his cousin, who is still gone, still absent from the house. And so Espinoza now gives orders. He gives orders about what work the Gutres ought to be doing. And they respond by following him around and cleaning up after him. And just looking to him for all sorts of guidance. Uh, they also always have coffee available for him. They don't drink coffee, but they're always making coffee for him to have, which that, that sounds like a nice a nice life. And uh, <laughs> finally, Espinoza also overhears them talking about him in brief, respectful words. This is such a dense section of text here that you just recapped.
1: This novel, for instance, that Espinosa reads to the Gutres before they move on to the Gospel of Mark from the New Testament. Uh, The novel is called Don Segunda Sombra. It's by Ricardo Guidraldez. And Guidraldez was Borges's friend. And this is a real novel about a cattle drover. And so I'm sure there's actually a lot we're missing here in terms of what this novel's about and what it's doing in the story. But I think Borges sort of means it as a joke for Gutre to not be interested in it in the novel, because the novel's literally just a, a kind of pulp version of his own life. And so that's why he doesn't want to listen to it. But that lets us get to the basic setup of the story now, this back half of the story, which is that everyone is trapped in the house because of the flooding. And the only thing left to do to pass the time in the evenings is read and think. And so when Espinosa is not reading, we learn that he's thinking about Buenos Aires and he's missing parts of it that he'd never go to. Like, We get the sense that he has this Kind of nostalgia for something that he hasn't experienced, but something which could potentially be very nice. And again, Espinosa gets to exercise his public speaking ability by reading, um, and so we're seeing this reinforcement of this I- these ideas of like potential, and Espinosa sort of getting by because he's maybe charming and a compelling speaker, and that's really what he's getting praised for, rather than actually uh, accomplishing anything. Though in this section, he does accomplish something. He, he he heals this lamb, and this lamb bit takes place in a paragraph that also includes Espinosa dreaming of the biblical flood, where he imagines he hears the sound of an ark being built, though this is... Um, more play with biblical imagery in a really complicated way that we'll see when we get to the end of the story. you know this ark is something in the Old Testament that will save the righteous in humanity um, it 's made of wood it 's built out of wood whatever we 'll see we 'll see something like that happen soon, but then there's also the rescuing of the lamb and and what we can assume is. You know, Espinosa is condescending in his position as a big city medical doctor, potential medical doctor, to save this girl's little lamb. Now, in the New Testament, a sheep is a pretty important image, as is the concept of the good shepherd, uh, especially as these images are connected to Christ as the shepherd and Christ as the lamb who is sacrificed but these images are not really strongly developed in the Book of Mark. Still, though, one gets the sense that either Espinosa through his orating of the gospel or the Gutres through hearing it are starting to participate in some sort of symbolic order that is beginning to shape their encounters with the world around them. And I think it's really important then that the Gutres are being presented in this sort of ignorant way that they are, as being ignorant, because what that's doing is showing us that they engage in the world in a very literal way. They're not mediating their encounters with anything through the use of symbolism. In other words, the lack of reading material in the house, the illiteracy of the gutres, is meant to communicate to us as readers that the gutres have no stories that provide them with a strong sense of i don't know semiotics <laughs> maybe uh, so yeah there's just there's so much going on in this sentence this this story almost demands like a sentence by sentence reading and i know it's a short story but i f- i feel like we're just breezing through it even at this pace. I guess I'll say here before we move on to the, to the end of the story that, uh, that other story apart from the crucifixion that poor Heser's referring to, that's Homer's Odyssey.
0: Right. And I hadn't actually thought about it until just this very moment. But, uh, you know, certainly now uh, here recording this episode, we are talking about, the, you know, the gospel and one of these stories that Borges invokes and I actually spent a big chunk of my morning reading parts of the Odyssey to, to Finch. So I, I have done both of them today. It's actually the only stories I've engaged with so far today. So I don't know. I feel seen, I guess, by Borges here.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I feel I feel seen by this story too. And in, in Borges' description of Espinosa as a, a sort of un- focused uh, person full of potential and and not full of accomplishment. But I don't know, whatever,
0: literature hits everybody in different ways. eh? Yeah. And well, something that I've been enjoying about this story up to this point is that this seems like kind of a nice vacation, right? The way that it's being narrated from right. Espinoza's <laughs> perspective, that if you're Espinoza, who are just a guest here with no obligations, no jobs to do, and there's just always coffee around and you're, you know, getting to hang out with new people you've never met before and perform for them, entertain them with your your speaking and your your reading. I mean this this sounds like a, a vacation. But of course it's not, right? Because there actually is still this business with the storm and the days of rain. Like an actual natural disaster has happened to the Gutras family here. But Espinoza seems kind of I just you know mentally insulated from that. But, you know, that's going to come back now here at this point in the story in a big way, because the Gutras tell Espinoza that the roof of the tool shed has collapsed. But they also say, don't worry, because they're going to fix it. And also, hey, if you hear any hammering, that's what they're doing. And uh, again, definitely don't worry about it. No need to supervise or check out what's happening at all. We've (laughs) we've got it taken care of, boss. Don't worry about it. Those aren't rats in the walls. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So there's another storm now. And that night, the daughter comes to Espinosa's room. She's naked. Espinosa has sex with her. And Borges tells us that Espinosa swore to himself not to tell anyone of the incident when he gets back to Buenos Aires. The next day, the father has a lot of questions for Espinosa, questions about Christ. He wants to know what hell is. And he also wants to make sure that the deal is that Christ died so that people would be saved. And he's especially interested to know if this includes those people who nailed Christ to the cross. Now, before dinner that evening, the three members of the Gutra family kneel before Espinoza and they ask his blessing. And then they curse him and spit on him, and they force him to the back of the house. When they open the door to the tool shed, he sees that the roof is open to the sky because the Gutras had, and, and here I'm quoting, torn down the roof beams to build The cross, and that's the last line of the story. Uh, Though I think it is safe to assume that Espinosa doesn't escape this situation. Maybe, maybe you have a different reading of that, Brandon.
1: No, it's it's unlikely that Espinosa escapes here. There's there's a funny line when uh, the the Gutra family is asking, you know, are you sure that? People who even nailed Christ to the cross uh, were saved, and Espinosa says yes, and then Borges writes, uh, but his theology was pretty shaky it 's you know this this guy Espinosa is just a, a pretender in a sense but there 's another textual image I want to bring up here, uh, which is this goldfinch that 's present at the end of the story, and goldfinches have a particular meaning in some of the apocryphal stories around Christ's crucifixion um a goldfinch or sometimes a robin was said to have plucked a thorn from Christ's crown of thorns during the crucifixion and kind of gotten uh, blood splashed on it which is why they have red chests and you know with espinosa meaning thorny and the vision of this goldfinch here There's something to be made of this symbolic link between Espinosa and Christ. I'm still not sure what it is.
0: Yeah, we're going to definitely unpack that. I mean, it's, you know, on the nose in some sense, but there are a lot of details there to unpack. And I've got questions then as well about some of the the other elements of the the story. And I, I can sense that you do as well, that there's some, some confusion here about that. But before we get into the discussion segment where we're going to do all of that, I want to remind people about nominating stories to the ballot. Uh, all of our content, everything that we cover here on Elder Sign is now decided by you. It's decided by listeners. Uh, Patreon supporters at certain levels can get recurring nominations to the bi monthly ballots. And then at other levels, you get single use nominations. But we do also sell them. Uh, There's a a base price to get a story on the ballot. But then if you're with us on Patreon, you get a a discount on that. And uh, the amount of the discount goes up for higher tiers of Patreon support. Now, we're already voting for the September ballot that's happening now, and there's a ton on that ballot. But if you've got a favorite story that you'd like to get on the November ballot, uh, I hope you'll get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter or Reddit. You can message us on Patreon. You can even email us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. We just love having the participation. And then also every time you nominate a story, that's you getting to shape the show to your tastes.
1: We love doing these nominations. Not only does it kind of take a certain cognitive load away from us and thinking about what stories to cover so we can really focus on covering uh, the stories that you've nominated, but also we know how Much fun it is to participate in a community of people who are reading the same stories. And we'd love for you to have the opportunity to, as Glenn said, help shape that community. So we hope you'll take us up on this. Uh, join us on Patreon at the level that will get you the number of nominations you want or just buy the nominations directly from us and uh, we'll get them on the ballot or cover the stories directly. It's a real pleasure for us to do this. And we love to learn about what you're reading and what kind of stories you're stuck on that you just keep thinking about that you want other people to think and talk about. So we really hope you'll take us up on this offer
0: yeah it's really really opened my eyes to to you know everything that weird fiction is or or can be anything that might fit under that umbrella and the the show has been a broader and bigger show than i ever expected because of that participation so i'm i'm eager and excited for for people to get in touch with us but all right uh, let's get back to uh, I guess, unexpected crucifixions. <laughs> so how do, how do you want to start this discussion, Brandon? <laughs> well, I really want to return to this
1: idea about the the symbolic link between Espinosa and Christ, and and really uh, anything that's going on in this story with, with Mark's gospel. But I have to say that what I want to start with here is something that really just didn't quite fit with the rest of the story and that's this this scene where espinosa sleeps with the gutre girl and what that has to do with the story in any way i mean in in one way this episode functions to make espinosa really blind to what the elder gutre wants when he's asking about the information about Christ's crucifixion and what it really accomplished. And this is what I really want to hear your thoughts on, Glenn. I mean, there's there's an almost witchy quality to this girl, to Espinosa sleeping with her as well. And that has a lot to do, I think, with just imagery from a film called The Sacrifice, which also has to do with Catholicism and witchcraft and this servant girl also being into Catholic magic who can do stuff. And I don't know. I I felt there was too much of an image overlap for there not to be maybe a kind of trope around this in Catholic storytelling, or maybe, uh, I don't know, agnostic Catholic storytelling. But this is where I want to start the discussion before we get into much bigger issues of the story. So, yeah, Glenn, what do you think is going on with this girl sleeping with Espinosa? Is she doing it just because Espinosa mended her sheep and there's this weird, like, reward for being gallant? imagery happening here or is there something that's an analogy to going on with Mark's gospel which to me d- didn't deal too much with Christ dealing with prostitutes in the way he does in other gospels like Matthew and and Luke I just didn't quite get the scene and maybe this is a good place to open up the story.
0: Yeah, I had a similar reaction to yours, maybe not quite as erudite. I haven't seen this Tarkovsky film. I wasn't comparing it to other incidents. (laughs) I was trying to figure out, you know, sort of where in the gospel is there, uh, you know, is, is there something like this that happens? And I think, you know, maybe there are two things that we might look at. And one of them is simply the temptation of Christ, often called the last temptation of Christ. And seeing that you know this is a, a kind of carnal temptation, right? Here is a, a a naked woman showing up and offering herself to you. Uh do you take advantage of that or 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 not, right? Is a, a a question here. And you know we know that Christ would not, right? Christ goes through the last temptation without succumbing completely to that temptation. But here Espinoza does. So you know maybe that's one thing that we could consider that this is a way of showing us that Espinoza, for all of the connections that he has to Christ, uh, some of them in small, uh, perhaps insignificant details, some of them perhaps uh, more more significant than that. But for all of those uh, comparisons, he is definitely not Christ because he does, in fact, give in to this last temptation. But the other thing that might be a viable candidate here for, Finding something in in scripture that this relates to is uh, the emphasis that is frequently placed on Mary Magdalene, and also reading Mary Magdalene as a a prostitute. Uh, And I you know I wondered if that was something that was happening here. Though I'm I'm on flimsier ground there, trying to kind of make that work in an allegorical sense. I I too wondered
1: about the Mary Magdalene connection. Of course, Mary Magdalene is not uh, a prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) But she does get often confused, especially in in Apocrypha and uh, various interpretations of the New Testament. I I guess she gets conflated with uh, one of the prostitutes that Jesus interacts with. But yeah, I just wondered what was going on here. And I I really think what Borges is drawing on is this type of carnal temptation that Espinosa fails at this. And so... It's maybe Borges making it explicitly clear to his readers who might wonder: Is Espinosa a perfect man in that Christian sense? Um, no, he's not. Right? He's making it clear to his readers that he's making it clear to his readers that Espinosa is really just an orator of a kind, and so was Christ. Christ, most of his ministry was speaking, and there's something about. That, I think, in this story, the power of speech and what it can accomplish, especially if we contrast it with um, the story of somebody going around the Mediterranean looking for a beautiful isle. that's a story about a person taking action uh, time and again in a material world where Christ's story is, uh, in in one way, a story about dangerous speech and its effects. And so I think there's another level of contrast there, in this story and that, you know, maybe Espinosa needs to be a little bit more careful about what he's talking about and making sure he knows what he's saying before he uh, speaks just to be provocative in a social setting.
0: Yeah, I I love this. This is a great observation, Brandon, because as as well, you know, something that Odysseus does is uh, he has a lot of sex with women, uh, some of them magical some of them, some of them not. But he has a lot of right. sex with women who are not his wife and whom he is not going to make his wife while he is trying to get home to his wife. Uh, this is something that people have a lot, you know, scholars and critics have a lot to say about this element of the character of Odysseus. But I, yeah, there is, because there is something to the fact that this story is taking place when this ranch house is literally an island and this is something that Borges points out in the text he makes sure that he uses the word isle to refer to what the ranch house is and so maybe this is a place where you know we can we can wonder you know if if Espinosa despite all the Christ-like accoutrements if he isn't really something more like Odysseus and that that creates a problem for him that he's not able to actually get out of. He's not actually cunning the way that Odysseus is. He's not cunning enough, <laughs> clever enough to get out of this problem that we we might equate to, uh, I don't know, the island of the Cyclops. I uh, might equate to his encounter with the Lotus Eaters, or even the Sirens. You know, because there there are three Sirens, right? And there are three people here in the Guthrie family, or something like that, right? That uh, I think my reading of this, just just my casual reading before you know getting on the the air today, had taken that bit about the Odyssey as kind of a joke, but actually maybe there are a lot of allusions to the Odyssey in this story too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I didn't approach the story that way because this story is called the Gospel of Mark. And so I feel as though Borges has directed us to encounter this story as, I me, mean, I don't know, maybe a religious parable or something like that. I don't think this story works on that level, but I think we should approach this story in that way before we look at the social Darwinism piece. I guess we'll have to leave it to our um, readers to look for those Odyssey allusions. But I found something really insidious about uh, the way the Guthrie family responds to the gospel. And I don't know whether... Borges wants us to think it's their fault, or there's some comedic misunderstanding, or whether it's Espinosa that's at fault. Though I think he's he's probably where I'd place the blame. But obviously, the Gutre family has completely misunderstood the meaning of this, you know, core story that's repeated uh, throughout mankind. You know, maybe Espinosa recognizes the irony of the presence of the goldfinch at his crucifixion. The gutres wouldn't. They've not encountered really anything in in, in symbola in symbolism and Christian symbolism. Um, but Espinosa has to know that he's really nothing like Christ. So, here's the question now: What did you make, Glenn, of all the Christian symbolism and imagery, especially in the tail end of the story? You know, what point do you think Borges was trying to make? About the Gutres, and this is maybe a leap that I've made as a reader about the Gutres trying to become initiates of a symbolic order. Are they just too literal as people
0: to participate in a symbolic order? Something that. Perhaps might be in the background of this story is that, you know, it's published in this collection in 1970. I'm not entirely certain when actually it was written, but that's its first publication date. But this is the era in which the Catholic Church is revising the manner in which it Pre- presents the the liturgy and and performs the mass by and by which I mean, uh, this is after the the Second Vatican Council that uh, decides that it's okay and in fact even required in, in in some sense that's maybe too strong of a word but uh, uh, be performing the liturgy and the the rituals of the the Catholic Christian service in the native language of the parishioners rather than in Latin. And this is a move that met with a lot of resistance. There were a lot of people who were, for various reasons, upset about this decision, didn't think it was a good decision. But one of the arguments was that people shouldn't be able to understand what the heck is going on in, in the liturgy. People shouldn't even be able to read the the scripture, unless they're reading it in Latin, because they shouldn't be exposed to the the intellectual content of the religion without the guide of someone who is a professional in that content, that people will misunderstand. They will misunderstand the scripture. They will misunderstand the liturgy if someone isn't there to guide them through that. And well, that is exactly what happens here. <laughs> That's what happens in this story is people who actually aren't able to have any access to this story because they they can't read it now suddenly have access to this story, but they're getting it from someone who is some kind of social Darwinist, right? Someone who doesn't really care about the religion at all, is not a practitioner of it as far as we can tell, but is a good performer. And so they're receiving this story without any context around it. And have totally misunderstood it to the point that they actually think that what they're supposed to do is crucify somebody and that that's how they're going to get into heaven.
1: I I think Borges is also maybe, and this is like going to veer into weird theological territory, uh, but one of the tenets of the Reformation from Catholicism was Luther's Sola Scriptura, which you know that the Holy Spirit will work in you when you encounter the Bible, and so you don't need any other texts. Maybe you don't need even uh, somebody to administer to you from the Scriptures or to. Perform rites of initiation into the faith. Um, that 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 the, the encounter with the scripture itself is enough, and uh, I think Borges is saying that, like, just from a perspective of a simple function of the way we use symbols in our society, and the, like hermeneutic approaches of how we interpret them and what even prepares us to interpret. Yes, maybe you can say if if you're a Christian that the Holy Spirit is doing that work of interpretation, but um, there's always a mass of things that come together to form an interpretive stance towards a, specifically a text, and that you know, one, the fear that this would happen that somebody would misread the Bible or one gospel to the point where they crucify a city. Doctor, just because they think they need to be saved and they've misunderstood it to this degree, that seems insane, right? Like there, there might be cases where that has happened. I don't know if there are though. Um, but this is not a case of martyrdom of the like a martyrdom of a missionary or something like that. This is the result of a. a I don't know, hilarious misunderstanding, I guess, of ignorance uh, coming to bear on symbolism. And so, yeah, I think that Borges just has a lot on his mind here as he's playing with theological categories, as he's playing with the role of symbols in society, and as he's making a point about the actual dangers of speech and its impact on, on a society, the way ideology functions as a, as a kind of non-material thing.
0: Right. I don't think that anything like this story ever actually happened. I don't think this is really a, meant to be a cautionary tale about <laughs> following the tenets of the, the Second Vatican Council or, or something like that. It it feels very tongue-in-cheek. And uh, in, in some ways, it feels a bit like comedically novelizing the satanic panic around D&D in the the 1980s, right? Where, n- you know, n- no one ever was uh, engaging, you know, no one playing D&D was engaging in human sacrifices in their basement, which was like the big fear of mothers, <laughs> uh, you know, th- it all, through suburbia, through American suburbia, apparently, as we're meant to understand at any rate. So yeah, this feels like it's, it's Borges maybe uh, reading some of those opinion pieces in the the Buenos Aires newspapers and, and, and Poking fun at them by writing this story, but I, I think like you, I still also want to take seriously, you know, what is actually going on with the Gutra family here. You know, is is Borges pointing to something about uh, education, about uh, ways of reading and and maybe misreading literature? Right, it may. May be that this has nothing to do with the, the the context of the Second Vatican Council, but but has has more to do with uh, debates among literary scholars or something like that. But that's something I'm much less well versed in.
1: Well, I think I think you're right to point to that as a big part of the story because we, I want at this point to return to that explicit dichotomy that's set up very early in the story, uh, which you know I'm talking here about the different instructions that Espinosa's father and mother give him. The father instructs his son to read Herbert Spencer while the mother instructs him to recite the Lord's Prayer. And this is, I think, really what the the crux of the story is. As I said before, Herbert Spencer was a philosopher, scientist, and social scientist. He coined the term survival of the fittest. He conceptualized what came to be known as social Darwinism. I'm not sure if he coined that term himself. Um, But social Darwinism is a theory that, at least in Herbert's mind, has to do with moving society forward through its thesis, antithesis, and and synthesis of social movements and periods of government, periods of history and so forth, so that society can cast away its worst elements in order to become a perfect society. And in so doing in so becoming a perfect society, humankind will also become perfected. So you know, one example is that uh you know, the period of empire was actually really good because it got rid of a bunch of races that we don't want. Spencer's pretty racist, I guess, here, right? He relied really heavily on racist concepts and the race sciences to justify not only brutal modes of governance and wielding of power, um, which... Would have been either a thesis or uh, an antithesis. He's not saying that's the goal, but that through these things we come up with a synthesis, which moves society forward one step towards this golden age. It's all very Hegelian. Um, But Spencer was also really, really, really against miscegenation, against um, people from you know different races. Which I'm really uncomfortable even using this to describe it. But you know having. Children and and blending races. So uh, all in all, pretty racist guy. And uh, survival of the fittest, as we all know, is in social terms a defense of Nazism, really of racism of all these categories of being that they don't work. Right? They just don't work. But on the other side of this, social Darwinism is in this story, these categories of stories like Christianity and the Odyssey that have lingered and permeated throughout every culture and society that they have been a part of since these stories have been told. And so maybe one question being raised by the text through this dichotomy is how something like social Darwinism can handle religion here, or Ancient stories that speak to cultures over time and don't really change. They seem to operate, stories like this seem to operate differently than Hegel's concept of history. And, you know, it's like really abstract. But this text does ask a deeply specific question about this, which is how do people? who are not the fittest for social survival, use ideas to overcome those who we deem to be fit for survival. And so maybe then another way to frame this question is, is everything just a battle of concepts and their social applications?
0: Yeah, social Darwinism has, uh, has not fared well in our appraisal of the 20th century, looking back <laughs> at all the things that, that social Darwinism is responsible for. And certainly race is wrapped up in social Darwinism in a, in a real big way, but so is class and. I think that's probably something that we see more in this story, right? Where we have the the Gutras as this uh, illiterate peasant class, and then we've got the big city doctor coming for a visit. And a social Darwinist would say that the you know the big city doctor is the fittest here. This is the person who should be procreating, whose children should be you know the the inheritors of the earth. And so many social Darwinists, of course, were in favor. Of sterilizing people who they didn't think were fit, right? So that they couldn't reproduce, and as you say, that often was simply done along racial lines. But it also frequently just meant poor people and or or workers in in general, right? But you know, the, the the upper middle class, the you know bourgeois class, they're the people who should be having kids, and yeah, that might be something that that Borges has in mind here as as well, where we see the The family who is the underclass, right, in, in this story, well, they're the ones who survive <laughs> here, right? That for all this education, his erudition, his uh, oratorical ability, and, and so on, uh, Espinoza doesn't make it out of this story al- alive, right? He doesn't survive. And that, in some ways, it's his education is actually his own undoing. If he hadn't been able to read English and sight translated into Spanish. And also, you know, to have done that in such an entertaining way, this family would not have killed him. They, they wouldn't have murdered him, right? And so, you know, again, this might be Borges poking some fun, you know, at, at at some of these ideas. But also, I think, like you, I think that there is this level at which Borges is also thinking about, you know, thinking about this in, in sort of symbolological terms, I guess, as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, uh, Borges is always a big fan of asking questions and asking his readers to think about the way we participate in what is largely uh, a symbolic world more than a material world. I'm always at odds with this question. I mean, I'm fairly torn in two over... I don't know, which I feel is more real in any given time, which is impacting people's lives more, the way they engage with symbols or the way they engage with their material life. Wondering whether there's a difference between them. I don't know. Ideology is so rampant, or the promotion of ideology is so rampant in our society. It's really hard to um, tear the two apart to separate them. Um, But I think Borges is, is... is the guy to read if you're interested in these questions. And we could really keep on unspooling, unraveling this question throughout this story if we wanted to. But I think think we've hit everything that was on my list to hit for today. Glenn, did you have any other uh, thoughts about this story before we close out here today?
0: Well, I, I don't have any more thoughts about it. I do just want to point out a few more places, uh, since we didn't do it during the recap, where uh, we do see the connections between Espinoza and Christ, because I had promised that we would talk about the age mattering and the time of year and right. so on. Yes, right. Yes. And so, you know, it is a big deal that Espinoza is 33, because that is the age at which Christ is crucified. It's March, uh, which means that it's Easter time, right? In fact, you know, it is Easter. That's that's what's happening here, right? It's Easter while this is going on, right? So there are all of those elements there and, and there are a few more of them as well where, you know, we are really meant to equate Espinosa with Christ. And uh it's it's interesting, you know, that Borges does this. There is a lot of humor in the way that he does this, right? He brings us through the healing of the lamb, which is definitely something of a miracle. And we know that what's going on, right, is that the Guthrie family is equating Espinosa with Christ but we don't at least I certainly didn't Brandon I did not anticipate that this was going to end in his crucifixion that's the exact opposite of what I thought was going to happen that this was going to turn into murder so you know Borges is kind of building up this story where we see all the steps you know as he's building it we see all the scaffolding but then somehow he just Tugs the rug out from under us and everything comes crashing down. My whole expectations about the story. So, just on a craft note, I just wanted to take a minute to admire the plotting of this story and the way that that Borges was able to uh, really uh, pull, really have a twist in this story that I I didn't expect and that had me kind of gasp while I was reading.
1: It's an example of what Kim Stanley Robinson called that slingshot ending that we we talk about sometimes on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. And in a story like this, I mean, I don't want to go into Wolfe here, but in a story like this, you can really see where Wolfe was influenced by Borges's interest in symbols, their interaction with the material world, with ending a story with a gasp that causes you to go back and reread it and make sense of it and to just sit and feel the heaviness of a story and then laugh while you're thinking about it. I mean, all of these sort of tricks, these craft skills are things that Wolf in particular, I think, really learned from uh, engaging with Borges.
0: Yeah, well, I'm... I'm- So glad that we've gotten a chance to do some Borges here on Elder Sign. We've only done one Borges story before, which we did on Patreon, I mean, literally years and years ago at this point. But uh, I do think we'll be doing some more Borges next year, and uh, listeners can uh, uh, stand by for the uh, uh, year-in-review show, at which point we will know for sure if that's going to be the case and talk more about that.
1: Yeah, we're both huge fans of Borges, so it was a real treat to encounter this story this past week and really uh, talk about it today.
0: But that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and all our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. And if you've got a favorite story that you would like us to cover on the show and want to nominate that to the ballot, we hope you'll get in touch with us. Uh, you can email us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com or write to us on any of our social media accounts. Next time, we're going to be back with the next installment of Voice of the Fire by Alan Moore. It's going to be the chapter called In the Drownings. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.